Good morning again. And if you've got a Bible, do you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 5? Ephesians and chapter 5. If you're just joining us, maybe you missed the last couple of days. Two days ago, Joel was speaking about really the relationship between sexuality and worship of God and the way in which our theology and our sexuality are connected and the way the world wants us to live versus the way God wants us to live. And then yesterday, I was talking on the connection between sexuality and creation. And we used a lot of kind of a lot of objects here to show that this marriage is really about that, the union of heaven and earth. And we, we talked about how sexuality for many people in our world has been stripped of its transcendence, its otherness, its spirituality, uh, so that a young man could say with a perfectly straight face, mystery, what are you talking about? Sex has no mystery. There's been a, a despiritualizing of sexuality. It's simply become a material process, and as a result, a lot of people don't understand why it couldn't ever be limited, why it could ever be limited to a certain kind of context, like marriage between a man and a woman. People don't get that, and many of you are, are kind of being brought up in that. You all are, really. And come, trying to come to terms with how you think about sexuality such that it's a spiritual thing. It's a transcendent thing. It's something that means something more than simply a physical collision of atoms and a pleasurable experience. And over the last 70 years, what's happened is the world has kind of chipped away at this huge Christian understanding of marriage and sex as spiritual and it's gradually removed cos co the cosmic significance, the Christian significance, the children bit, then marriage altogether. You know, why not just live together? Why get married? Then, then commitment, partnership. Why even be a, in a partnership with someone? Why bother? If you enjoy having sex, just have it with someone that you're not in a relationship with. What does it matter? It's just a physical thing. And finally, why we, we could remove other people altogether. Yeah, you don't even need another person. You can just have sex on your own with a magazine or a website or whatever. So just gradually, the vision of sexuality has got smaller and smaller and smaller. So it's hardly surprising that we now live in an age where most of your friends and a good deal of you would find it hard to understand why there should be any restrictions on it at all. Because it doesn't mean anything. It's like going to the toilet. It's a biological process that you kind of have to do. So why care about it? You don't Imagine some of you, you're going to the toilet this week, you're not really thinking twice about the sort of receptacle that you're going to the toilet into. I don't mean to be, are you? You know, some of them are not that, you know, no offense to the toilet guys, but you know, they're not the most high spec lose. But you go to them and you just, I don't think anything of it. It's just a physical process. If you reduce sex to simply a physical process, then women or men become toilets, really. They become means of exercising a biological need. What does it matter? I don't really care about the relationship I have with them any more than I care about the relationship I have with a lavatory. Why would I? I trust that's not your experience, but you never know. And the world's story is that sex is just physical. And the fun police are marching around, people like me and some of you, marching around saying, no, you mustn't do that, mustn't have any fun. If you're enjoying it too much, must be naughty. And that they are, the world says, and we are liberating people. We are taking the shackles off their feet so they can dance. So they just want to praise sex. They just want to enjoy whatever they want. And we are, the world think that, they, that I, someone like me is the bad guy. I'm trying to stop people enjoying themselves. And they are liberating us all. Just like we liberated the slaves now, we're liberating the sexually oppressed. And actually what they're doing is tying people up in further and further layers of knots in which sexual self-expression is required for happiness, but it never quite delivers. Because it lasts for a few minutes, maybe even a few hours, 
And then you feel, do you know what? That didn't have the significance I feel it should have had. And therefore, like all addicts, we go, well, I'll just have some more. I'll have some more. I'll have some more. Maybe that'll fill the void. And the reason it doesn't work is because sex has got smaller. It was never meant to be just this. It was meant to be this. It was meant to be about that. And when it's just about this, ultimately, it cannot satisfy. That's the world, the world story. The Christian story is, no, 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 complementarity, maleness and femaleness, and sexuality is built into creation. And spirituality is built into sex. And that's why we celebrate marriage like we do. We have a huge party. It would seem strange to many people that we do that. These two are going to have sex in a few hours. Let us all cheer them and celebrate them. Would be a weird thing to do. But we do it because we know that them doing that has cosmic significance. It has public significance. It means children will be often born and raised into that context. It will cause human flourishing. It will be good for them. It will be good for the world. So we celebrate it. You only do that because you've got something like a Christian vision of sexuality. And that's the reason that why the debate is so heated and you get caught in the crossfire is because the world story and the Christian story, story clash full on against one another. For most people today, the question isn't, what is sex? They think they already know what sex is. Sex is just a physical thing that I do to enjoy. So if you're stopping someone doing it, it's a discrimination issue. Whereas I'm saying, no, no, no. I don't think we agree about what sex is at all. I think you think it's a physical enjoyment experience that could be had with anybody. And I don't think that at all. I think it's a spiritual, mysterious, transcendent, otherworldly thing. It's a reflection of and a signpost to the union of heaven and earth. As it happens, by the way, I don't think anybody believes that sex is just a physical thing you can have with anybody who you might want to, if they want to too. Because nobody I know thinks that I can have sex with my sister, or my dog, or my daughter, or someone else's mother and father at the same time, or three other people's wives at the same time. We know it's more than that. We know that even if that was consensual, you would go, ew, and you're absolutely right, because we know that it isn't just physical enjoyment. Logically, what's wrong with me having sex with your dad? I'm being... I'm pushing the envelope a bit, but logically, if we both want to, what, why could it matter? And yet, a lot of us in us would go, I would find that very upsetting and unpleasant because I know that sex isn't just a physical thing. It means more. It's symbolic. It's spiritual. And I know that for many, these messages are going to be hard to hear, right? For, for many, what Livy was saying last night about dying and living, dying that you may live, this is the issue. Sexuality is the issue on which you will find the hardest demands placed on you. You will find all the other things that the world is asking, that God is asking you to give up, fine. Yes, go on, radical mission. Leave my money behind, leave my family behind, fine. But restrictions on my sexual self-expression, I'm not sure. That's costly, I know. I was attracted to guys all the way through my teenage years and I found that very difficult. I was then attracted to girls as a single man and I didn't find it any easier. I then got married, and that even then, that has its own challenges. And so I've been through several phases in life and experienced different kinds of challenge expressing human sexuality wisely and in an obedient way to God. So I know what many of you are going through, and I don't say it lightly, but I do know that for many of you, this will be the place where Livy's message last night really stings. You need to die. And we're going to talk a little bit about why and how that works today and tomorrow. And what I want to do today is off the back of yesterday, that's why I've reviewed it at such length, off the back of yesterday, sexuality is not just about union of heaven and earth. It's about something even more than that. 
Sexuality is about the gospel. Sexuality is about the gospel that you, we have just been singing about in song to God. We, sexuality is about the message of what Jesus has done for you. And I want to show you why that's true from Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5 verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Notice, Paul's logic is not, wives submit to husbands because women are inferior to men. His logic is, wives submit to husbands because the church submits to Christ. And women, you are playing the part of the church. And Husbands, you are playing the part of Christ. It's nothing to do with whether men or women could do X, Y, or Z. It's actually to do with how it is that God has created men and women to express something higher than themselves. That's important. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So all the young men who go, yes, wives will submit to me. Say, yeah, you accept. You have to die for them. So that's kind of harder. Gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Then he quotes Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This mystery is profound. Nobody gets it. But I'm saying that marriage refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband's. Marriage is a parable of the gospel. Human sexuality, when expressed in marriage, is a parable of the gospel. It is not simply about a husband and a wife. It's not even simply about heaven and earth. It is about the coming together of Christ and his church in the gospel. Everything about the wedding ceremony that we use in church and that you use, in fact, in many of your, you've been to weddings by people who aren't even Christians. They will use the same kind of structure to their weddings, many of them. And everything they do is putting on display the union of Christ and the church. And they don't even see it. And many of us haven't even seen it. Man and woman, leaving father and mother, holding fast to each other, becoming one flesh sexually. This, Paul says, this is a profound mystery. But I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Otherness, right? These two are different. Christ and the church are different. Men and women are different. Surrender. They die to themselves and become united together. Permanence, it's forever. Oneness, they become one, not two. Otherness, surrender, permanence, oneness. Four things that marriage puts on display that reflect the gospel. And I help you see how this works in a wedding. We're actually going to do a little wedding, okay? Now, these two are already married because otherwise it'd be a little bit weird. But Callum, if you want to come on out. So give, let's give Callum a round of applause. He's going to play the part of the husband here. Now... I think it's fair to say that Callum scrubs up pretty well. So you just want to turn and give them a twirl. There we go. Very nice. Now, I, I had the privilege of being at Callum and Katie's wedding a few years back. And I was standing at the front. And Callum was waiting 
before the wedding even started, at the front like this, looking nervous. And he, he's standing at the front waiting because he has already done his bit. He has effectively provided for the bride to come in looking prepared and ready. He has already made, if you like, a, probably a financial offering, but an offering that means that she is able to come in dressed as she is. And so he doesn't come in at the back of the church. He's already here. He's waiting. And often in our weddings, we make the, bride, make the bridegroom wait a little. So he's standing there going, come on, what's going on? And she's waiting. But the, because the big event is not about the arrival of Callum, no offense. No one even noticed he turned up, right? Literally, people do what we just did. They go, hey, Cal, how you doing? You just got up very nicely. Nice necktie, and then off we go. And we carry on doing our thing and talking, and he's stuck there like a lemon on his own. He might have a best man nearby giving a bit of banter. Oh, I've lost the rings. Oh, have you? Oh, you know, but that's it. Nobody cares that the groom at this point is not the big event. All eyes are not on the groom. And then she arrives and word begins to spread. The bride begins to arrive at the back of the room and the wedding music begins. And somebody like me stands and says, okay, if we could all get to our feet. And she begins to walk in. She comes in from the back and every eye in the room is turned on her. Everyone in the room is looking at the bride. And she walks in down the aisle. And not a person in here is looking at him. And he begins to turn and look and he might choke up, he often does. And he looks and sees her looking as beautiful as she ever does. And as she walks down to the very front of the church and stands here, the music fades. And I would say something like, wow, doesn't she look beautiful? And in my living memory, I've never said, Callum, doesn't he look beautiful? And she looks okay too. When she comes in, she's dressed in white. She's dressed in white from head to foot. Probably almost everything she's wearing is white. You can just see the whole thing is this radiant, sparkling white. And there's always the old ladies who go, oh. And there's always the little girls who go, oh. And there's always the young lads who go, everybody's looking. And everybody's marveling at spotlessness, the representation of purity. They look different, right? They look very different. They are playing different parts. That's intentional. They're not supposed to look at all the same. If he came in dressed like that, you'd say, no, 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 no. You've misunderstood what a wedding is. If she came in dressed like that, you'd say, whoa, what is going on here? They are deliberately symbolizing different parts that they play. And then after a while, I'll say, can you just tell me and tell this congregation that you don't know of any legal reason why you can't get married, that you are not legally already committed to someone else? You're not married to another guy, are you? No, you're not married to another woman. You're not married to three other women and a pet. No, okay, good. So we're all clear. We do that. And then we say, okay, I wonder if you could now join hands. And I begin to ask them to make declarations to each other. And I say, do you now declare that you are going to love and cherish? Speak to Callum first. He's the initiator, right? He makes her ready. And then she comes in later. He's initiated this relationship. He's asked her out, probably. He's asked her to marry him, probably. And even if he hasn't done either of those things, in this wedding, he speaks first. And he says, yes, I promise to love her, cherish her, honor her, give up everything I have for her, and to forsake everybody else as long as we are alive. So if I was to come along and go, oh, Callum, look at me, aren't I really beautiful? Maybe I can take you away from your bride. He goes, no, I forsake you. And if I go, hey, Katie, hey, what do you think about it? She goes, slap, I forsake you because I promised I would. And she then says the same vows. She says, yes, I will forsake you. And then they repeat 
these famous vows to have and to hold from this day forward for better or worse or richer or poorer in sickness and in health. You might have a cataclysmic accident tomorrow. That means you are totally paralyzed and I am gonna love you anyway and I'm gonna give my life to look after you anyway because of the promise I've just made. And having done that, I say, do you have the rings? And the best man goes, and then he produces them. And then we say, right, could you now take hold of this little ring and could you put it on her finger? And she stretched out her hand and he says, I give you this ring as a sign. This is a covenant symbol. This is a physical thing that you put on your finger that you could look at any time, day or night and remind yourself of the promise that I have made to you. It's not a, she doesn't wear the ring that symbolizes her promise to him. She wears the ring that symbolizes his promise to her and then she does the same with him. She gives him a ring and it's a lot bigger, but the same idea. I have promised something to you and so here is my gift to you, a covenant sign or seal that marks out that what we've just said is always gonna be kept till death us do part. And then having done all of that, they depart. They walk to the back to great cheering and applause and celebration and when they do, everybody has a feast Everybody has a meal and parties. And at the end of it, her legal status is totally different. She is no longer as she was Katie Thornett. She's now Katie Limpany. She's now Mrs. Somebody Else. She has, if you like, died to her old identity. And for some women, that's difficult, right? For a lot of women, they go, I like my name. I like what it's, there was a woman in our church who, she, she had a Greek name and she said, it's costly for me. I love my Greek name and my Greek heritage and for me to give that up for this very ordinary English name I find a, a costly thing but I, this to me is what marriage means I am dying to the old me including the bits I like and I am embracing his identity and wearing it with pride and so she does she dies to the old her she takes on a new identity practically they take, she takes on a new address everything that he has is now hers everything that she has is now his They have exchanged goods, they have exchanged gifts, they've exchanged covenant signs, they've held hands, they've made promises, and they leave no longer as two, but as one. So when I say, those whom God has joined together, let no one separate, you may kiss the bride, everybody lifts the roof. Thank you. Now, can you see that every detail I've just shown you This is about that. Can you see how that's true? Let me walk it through for you. Jesus does the work at the beginning. He has done his bits. We are not at this point all eyes on whether or not he is going to look beautiful. He has already done all that was required of him. And he stands and he waits. He is even now in a process of waiting for the day when his bride is pure and without spot and is presented to him forever. And the bride begins to walk in through the back of the room. And the church, Jesus' bride, whom he died for, looks spotless. Think about everything you've ever done that's gone wrong, everything you've ever done that you shouldn't have. How much grace does it take to cleanse every single stain of what I've even done this morning? Far less what we've all done together. And yet, as the church walks in the back of the room, she is spotless. Everybody in creation is staring at the church, saying, there's not a glitch on her. 
There's not a stain on her. There's not a wrinkle on that dress. There's nothing flawed about that tiara. Everything about her is beautiful and lavish and white. And as the woman, as the church walks up the aisle, it may not be Pasha Wells Cannon or the wedding march, but the whole of creation is staring at the bride going, Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow no other fount I know nothing but the blood of Jesus the wedding march is in a different key and the room applauds as they see the church presented pure and spotless the church, the church then gets to the front of the aisle. The church turns to Jesus. And if you like the vicar, God, imagine it this way. God turns and says, do you know of any legal reason why you can't get married today? Jesus, have you ever given yourself to anybody else? And he says, never. And you say to the church, have you given yourself to anybody else? Is there a reason you can't marry him? And the church says, never. Even when we have our stains have been wiped clean, And then he says, wonderful. So now I invite you to turn and join your hands and make your promises. You look different. The church and Christ are different. They play different roles, right? The the, Christ is the initiator. So he goes first and he says, I promise I will always love you. I will always honor you. I will forsake everybody else. If any demon, as Satan once did, was to try and come to me and lure me away from my commitment to you, I wouldn't do it. If in the garden I was wrestling with my own thoughts, can I handle this? Am I going to be able to present her pure and spotless? Or is there another way? Even when I am doing it, I will say, no, not my will, but thine. I am going to keep on this track. I am going to offer myself in order to purify her. I will forsake all others as long as we both shall live. And then he turns to the church. What about you? And the church says, I also will love you, honor you, submit to you, you notice it's not an entirely mutual relationship, right? It's mutual. They give, each other to, they give themselves to each other. But there's things that the ch- Christ does that the church doesn't quite and things the church does that Christ doesn't quite. And the reason why husbands and wives have an asymmetrical mutuality, oh, that's a nice phrase for the day. But the reason why they do is because Jesus and the church do. And they're playing different parts in that play. And the church says, I will love you, honor you, and forsake everybody else. And if an idol was to appear, and if money was to appear, and fame was to appear, and sex was to appear, and all of these other gods, I would be able to say, I forsake you, because I committed myself to that man. And the church does that. And everybody goes, oh, we're still on track. And then he says, right now, make these vows to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. And the church and Christ say all of those things. No matter what, I am keeping these promises till death parts us. And the glorious thing and the, one of the biggest differences between the wedding in man and woman and the wedding of Christ and the church is that in Christ and the church, there is no need to say till death do us part because it never will. And anyway, they continue. They continue. The husband and wife then exchange rings. The husband takes a physical symbol. Christ takes a physical symbol. In his case, I think he takes two. He takes bread and wine and he takes water baptism and he gives them to the wife. He gives them to the church. And he says, these things, baptism in water, bread and wine, these things are the physical seals of the promise I've just made to you. 
And when you look at your baptism and when you take bread and wine, you are reminding yourself physically of something that is already true spiritually. You are reliving again the glories of this covenant that we have sealed here today with these gifts. And the church says, why, thank you. That's wonderful. I will make sure I do those things. And then, having done all of those things, the declaration is made. You too have now become one. You have now joined yourselves together. Let that which God has joined, nobody ever separates. You are now two become one. And at that moment, legally, the church and everyone in her loses the old identity and rises again to a new one. You and I, as Liv was saying last night, you and I have lost the old identity that we had. We have lost, some of us have got names, as Livy was saying, that we kind of like or we want to keep or we're worried that we'll never be able to lose. But something happens when God says, you're now one, we lose the old name and we now wear his name. So instead of being Mr. Andrew Wilson or Mr. Something else, I'm now, I'm Mr. Jesus. That's why you and I call each other Christians. We're saying, I'm with him. His name has changed my identity. I lost everything that was old and scuzzy about me and I've got everything that's glorious and righteous about him and not only have I got his name, I've got everything he ever owned, everything he ever wants to give me, all his earthly possessions. Jesus says in Psalm 2, ask of me, God says to Jesus, ask of me and I'll give the nations as your inheritance. Jesus has the nations for his, his inheritance and he gives them to you. You share as co-heirs with him of everything that there is and then Having done this, there's a, I don't know quite how you may now kiss the bride works, but it's an expression of delight and love between the two anyway. And the church and Christ are then united forever and they leave to rapturous applause from the angels, astonishment from everybody else, and the biggest feast and wedding after party you have ever seen. That's the gospel. That's the gospel and every single bit of it is mirrored in the way that you and I see marriages most, most of us have seen weddings of some sort, and even when you've seen them in a joke movie, even when you've seen them in Four Weddings and a Funeral or The Vicar of Dibley or wherever it was you saw them, you will have seen that action enacted to the letter in some cases. And all of it is saying, Jesus loves the church. Jesus loves the church. All of it is intended to make everyone in the room stop and stare, and instead of going, oh, doesn't she look lovely? Instead to be looking at her and then looking at him this is what I do in weddings, by the way. When she's walking in, I look at the bride, and then I always look at the groom and think, is he blubbing? And then I look back at her, and I say, no, he's not blubbing. Yeah, and then I look back and I think he's crying, because I was like this. And I hate that face, but I like seeing it on other people. So I'm always looking between, between the two. And it's like the whole room in creation is looking at the church, and looking at Christ, and looking at the church, and looking at Christ. And the intention of the wedding ceremony between Christ and the church is to cause the whole of creation, including the church herself, to rise up in song. May I never lose the wonder, oh, the wonder of your mercy. May I sing your hallelujah, hallelujah, amen. And we're all supposed to join in because we're looking and thinking, what kind of mercy does it take to make her look as spotless as that? What kind of power do you have? What kind of power do you have in your voice to say it's finished and all of it goes what kind of power do you have to present her looking like that and the whole room stares at him and thinks if that kind of power is available to you that kind of love emanates from you I can do nothing but worship so you have purification surrender 
Promises, signs, commitment, difference. All of that is a profound mystery. And Paul says, I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Now, it might raise lots of questions. It raises questions. So, you know, that, that, by the way, that enactment, as a, just an aside, that's not what this talk is about, but that's why so-called gay marriage isn't marriage. Because it doesn't put this gospel on display at all. It actually says Christ and the, the church are the same. That's why various other kinds of sexual relationship are out of line for Christians. Not because Christians are the fun police. Nothing, anything but that. Anything, nothing's further from the truth. But because Christians' vision of sexuality is so large that it isn't open to every single relationship between any two people to work it out as they see fit. It's actually for those of us who want to express our sexuality to say there are godly ways of doing this. Singleness, marriage between a man and a woman. And there are ungodly ways of doing it that make it look like the gospel isn't true. So I'm not going to do those things. And if you're wondering where single people fit in, we could say a lot about that. But singleness, and that you'll notice that these two are not the only people in a wedding ceremony. You have a best man. You have bridesmaids. You have the father of the bride who gives her away. And it's interesting that the single people in the Bible, including Jesus, John the Baptist, Paul, right? Some big hitters on that list, I think you'd agree. They picture themselves using wedding terminology. Jesus is the bridegroom. John the Baptist is the best man. Paul talks about himself as the, as the father of the bride, effectively the one who presents the woman to the, the groom and says, she's now spotless, I've done my bit. There's even foolish bridesmaids and wise bridesmaids make an appearance in the Gospels. Jesus is casting single people in all of these other roles to say, this isn't just about a man and a woman are not the only people who image the Gospel in a wedding. Everybody does. Everybody who's there puts something of the gospel on display. And in contrast to our marriage-obsessed church culture, everybody's got to get married. Oh, otherwise you can't be happy. Jesus was single. The greatest prophet, Jeremiah, was single. Greatest apostle, Paul, was single. Most influential Christian in the world today, the Pope, was single. Mike Pilavachi, even, is single. You didn't think it was building up to him, did you? Jesus, Paul, the Pope, Pilavachi. Yes, that's how we're going to do it today. Sex isn't everything. And actually what we can put on display wrongly if we're not careful is a false gospel that is only in sexuality, only in sex between a man and a woman you can find happiness. That's absolute nonsense. And single people know that. Now obviously the world we're part of and even a lot of people in the church find what I'm saying difficult to hear and they don't like it and they have objections. But we're going to look at those objections tomorrow and we're going to talk about what we do about it. But a huge amount of Christian discussion about sexuality starts with the objections and I think that's unhelpful. We... We have to start with what sex means, what it is, what sexuality is for. It is there to represent the union of heaven and earth, as we saw yesterday. It's there to represent the union of Christ and the church, as we're seeing today. The world has a story. Sex is about physical pleasure, maybe companionship, and history is the story of more and more freedoms being taken, but sex becoming smaller and smaller. Our story is different. God has a story too. And if the band could come up now as we're just concluding. God has a story too. Sex is about creation and children, and complementarity, and the gospel of Jesus and the church, and the snake hates that story. And every time the snake attends a wedding, he hates it. He looks at it and he goes, what are you doing? How on earth, how can I take this out? How can I destroy this picture of the gospel? And as we have our weddings, Sam, Zach, and the others, if you guys are around, it'd be great to come up. The snake hates the story and he will stop at nothing to attack it, but God wins and the church walks down the aisle and the, she and the Savior who rescued her live happily ever after and keep their promises. And the rest of the world and the bride stare on and sing.
Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Sing it again. Oh, precious is